0: Welcome. My name is Neha Visakha, and I'm happy to invite you to listen to the podcast series, The Feminist City. This is hosted by Vidhi Center for Legal Policy, and in this series, we hope to think about cities, our relationships with the city, and exclusions in the city. Over the course of these episodes, we engage with the big, the small, and the mundane details that go into what makes cities our homes, what makes cities accessible to us, and what makes cities hostile to us. In this episode, I speak to Dr. Sneha Anwarapu, a qualitative sociologist on driving, road safety, why we don't see many or any women driving autos or cabs in our cities, and the role of sociology in thinking about the city itself. Hello. Hi. Hi, Sneha. I am really excited to have you here. Um, I'll just introduce you to our audience first. Dr. Sneha Annabharapu is a qualitative sociologist and specializes in ethnographic methods. Her research interests include urbanization, governance, class relations, and gender in contemporary India. She's currently a social sciences teaching fellow at the University of Chicago, and I cannot tell you how excited I am uh, to have her with me in this conversation today. Thank you so much for joining us today, Sneha.
1: I'm so excited to be here and it's it's lovely to chat with a namesake. So, you know, thanks for inviting me to this uh, show and I'm, um, yeah, I'm looking forward to our discussion.
0: Yeah, no, this is, uh, I think it might be a little confusing for, yeah, for audience members, but uh, I am, I'm very excited to actually have this conversation. So uh, just before we begin, maybe, um, I think uh, from your introduction, I don't think it's quite clear, although varied interests and interesting things that you do in your research I would love it if you could just give us a brief taste of what you work on like in your own words what what your research entails
1: yeah sure Um, it is true that a lot of uh, representational purification involves uh, you know just coming up with categories for the varied empirical research interests one has but um, okay it's a long story and I'll try to keep it as short as possible Um, I did my undergraduate degree and master's in development studies at IIT Madras and after that I moved to Chicago to do a PhD and my first research project was actually um, a historical analysis of uh, the figure of the kissing couple in India so how are public displays of intimacy viewed and what are the kinds of moral panics around the figure of the kissing couple i was looking specifically at heterosexual couples uh, to be very honest so started doing some research along those lines and that was initially my phd project um i moved to bombay to do some preliminary research and quickly realized that it was very difficult to do this kind of research due to um, certain methodological issues ethical issues of like basically like watching people in public for some (laughs) such and I didn't really want to be a creep. So um, (laughs) yeah, and like, you know, on a more serious note, um, I found it a little bit hard to uh, hang out with the policemen in Bombay. I wanted to look at how people use the obscenity law, um, indecency law um, to regulate behavior in public spaces. I wanted to talk to resident welfare associations who have actually been a very active player in Uh, pushing kissing couples out of like public parks near in like particular neighborhoods in Bombay so I wanted to do that kind of an analysis but very quickly uh, I realized that I don't have the kind of social networks or capital in Bombay to pull it off and meanwhile like time was running out in terms of like me defending a dissertation proposal so I shifted gears quite literally and decided to start looking at another behavior in public space that is now coming under increasing regulation, which has nothing like kissing in public, but it's, it's driving. So I went to Hyderabad and I realized that there was a lot of, um, camp public campaigning and mobilization around regulating driving habits. And I got really interested in the kinds of rhetorics of care and development that, um, that entail a lot of uh, discussions around why we need to, regulate the behaviors of drivers and there's a lot of you know like culturally intimate humor around it there's so many memes around Indian drivers for instance and I just thought it would be a um, an interesting cultural analysis that can reveal uh, state citizen relations in Hyderabad so I did an ethnography with traffic police I hung out with them I saw what their work entails and how they interact with motorists of different various social positions I did interviews and ethnographic observations with drivers of various social positions that I myself learned to drive as part of the ethnography and oh, wow. yeah that is my dissertation research so um, I'm still working on I mean I defended my dissertation but I'm now working um, towards making it into a book length project and while I was doing dissertation research I myself was taking a lot of cabs and auto rickshaws and moving around the city going from one interview to another, or one event to another, from one police station to another. And during those moments in transit, I began to reflect a lot about how ethnography is a very gendered practice, how me putting myself out in the field um, is essentially taking a personal risk as a woman accessing transportation options in India. And we all know that public transport in India is well, it's dismal in terms of um, safety, but also in terms of convenience and comfort. Mm -hmm. and um, so I was taking a lot of app-based cabs and I began to talk to drivers um, as part of my research methods when I was interviewing them while they were driving and I found it very interesting that they would often say stuff like you are talking to me um, but nobody else like people in your social class don't really talk to me they look at me like I'm a servant so I was very intrigued by this articulation of a class status by drivers and so I ended up Starting another research project alongside my driving one, which had to do more narrowly with um, women, how women, relatively upper class women cab passengers and relatively lower class male cab drivers interact in the space of a cab and the sorts of um, narratives they hold about one another. And I did in-depth interviews with about 40 cab drivers in which I asked specifically these questions around women and the women passengers. And I interviewed about like 25 women who are all, you know, in the category of the upper middle class, upwardly mobile, young, yeah. urban, educated, working in an IT company. And so that formed the basis of my next research project, in which I want to look at how the state is taking women's safety. Um, You know, as part of a larger branding project in Hyderabad, and how the police are taking up the cause of women's safety as being dear to their, um, to policing. I mean, to to producing safety in the city. And it's I'm just starting out, but I have a forthcoming article in Social Problems in which I more specifically show the results of my interviews with cab drivers and women passengers. And yeah, so these are the myriad interests that I have been sort of juggling in the past few years i hope to go back to the kissing couple project again although i think um it would be it would be imperative to bring up a religious angle now especially with all of the you know conversation true. around love jihad mm-hmm. i think yeah uh, i'll have to think through those questions again but i hope to come back to that project at some point um but yeah that's that's me in in some not really a nutshell but uh, <laughs> somewhat of a summarized version
0: i mean yeah. i think uh, this is fascinating. I think, as as I've mentioned to you before, even when we first interacted, I mean, when I came across your work, I was utterly fascinated. And I think um, since I had the pleasure to read the, the article that you have that, that's going to be coming out about mm-hmm. this. And I I mean, one of the things that really excited me about your work in particular is precisely the fact that... Um, Gender was central, even if it was not intentional, maybe. But I think mm-hmm. probably, like you said, that you as a young woman navigating Hyderabad um, yourself sort of experienced certain things that I think inevitably came in, into your research, right? Mm-hmm. That sort of comes out clearly. And I think uh, one of the things that I wanted to do in this podcast is also precisely that kind of centering of women, of uh, essentially anyone who's not an able-bodied you mm-hmm. know heterosexual cis man in the yeah. city because I think when we talk about a lot of things and I think um, before I get ahead what I wanted um, to sort of bring up and I'd love to hear more about what you'd say is is this really interesting ways in which class gender and you know all of these contexts sort of keep shifting In like mm-hmm. that's what I felt when I was reading your paper because uh, one of the things that I mentioned in the introductory episode is about how your identity matters and mediates your access to the city, right? And I yeah. think we've talked about it in the sense who you are and where you come from and what identities you present to the world somehow significantly impacts. Whether in, I think for women, a predominant predominant um, factor might be safety, but as you look at it in your work, that safety can be navigated if you're an upper-class woman through access to certain kinds of transportation or certain types of navigations that, say, certain... So women from lower class or lower class backgrounds may not be able to access. So I was actually hoping um, you would talk a little bit about these the ways in which these different contexts shift, right? Like within one, like I think one of the uh, uh, one of the things that stood out for me when I was actually I went back and re-read some of your articles is, for instance, in the context of drunk driving. Like mm-hmm. I think there is a very clear idea that drunk driving is a bad thing right in the mm-hmm, city like mm-hmm. nobody would be in support of it except I think even me like even when I think about drunk driving I think I assumed the driver would be male mm-hmm. and when the when you talk about women who are drunk driving and they talk about that context between oh they think they're navigating for safety yeah. it just it just opened up something that I think does not occur to most people right yeah. so I'd like I like I'd really like you to talk about that a little bit.
1: Yeah and I just wanted to add that I think it's not just that we present our identities to the city or the immediate like urban space actively reproduces these identities in particular ways you know what I mean like it also shapes our own understanding of the self Um, and I think there's like much there's a very intimate process of uh, us presenting and then just either you know our version of what we think we are being validated in the city uh, or being shut down immediately and you kind of like Reproduce uh, certain uh, reified gender roles, but yeah, mm-hmm. coming back to the, uh, for instance, like in the drunk driver episode uh, in the research that I was doing, well, I basically began to interview these women, and I realized very quickly that a lot of them love driving, um, especially at night, and uh, were often going to spaces of. Um, recreational leisure that are by now uh, almost banal to us like bars and clubs and restaurants and you know there's a particular segment of society of course so I want to uh, make sure that it doesn't seem like all women are going out and doing this of course Um, but on the way back uh, and this, this story was confirmed by traffic police too where they were just like there's a lot of drunk elite drunk women nowadays like driving like, you know, luxury sedans or like even like smaller cars, like there are all these women who are driving and they're always drunk. Now the traffic police were peddling a like you know typically moralistic story to me where they were just like, oh, these women have become so spoiled and uh, there's so many like, and there's a regional bias, by the way, in amongst traffic police, it's always North Indian women that are, you know, somehow like the spoiled ones. Oh, no, no. Yeah. So there's always like, you know, the Hindi yeah. women are coming into Hyderabad and spoiling the culture, which of Telugu women that was actually earlier very sacrosanct okay. um, yeah. but the women themselves articulated a much more complicated issue where a lot of them were very blunt in saying that I feel a lot more comfortable a few drinks dr- down and then driving my car then I feel being alone in the back of a cab with a strange cab driver so in a sense they were choosing between two unsafe options one is being drunk and driving which there is a medicalized risk or whatever like an epidemiological risk of sorts of like accidents which are considered to be a public health hazard in many ways but the other is that they were articulating is just like personal safety so it was it became very difficult to have a strictly like you know a clear answer to which is a better option it's like being stuck between a rock and a hard place and even I honestly did not think of that till they articulated this to me where they were like well I just feel like driving drunk is less of a risk than being in a cab with a drunk man and it was a mind blowing moment during my field work okay. when i was being
0: like, drunk right the man wasn't drunk the other way around yeah but like being drunk and being with a yeah a
1: not that the cab driver would be drunk that wasn't as much of a concern it was just that the woman would be drunk but at the hands of a cab driver who might take of advantage of the drunkenness yeah. Yeah. yeah and so it was it was an interesting moment where you suddenly realize that if you take the lens of gender and view this particular act of drunk driving there are much more complicated relations of safety and danger that come up that you don't think of if you look at drunk driving as an ungendered act you know Um, and yeah so no no
0: absolutely and I think um, this is where uh, this is what is fascinating a lot of the a lot of the dominant thinking about cities also mm-hmm. seems like I don't think that I mean growing up, I grew up in Hyderabad and I live in Bangalore and I've lived in Delhi before this. Um, I don't think I particularly viewed the city as mm-hmm. gendered when I was navigating it as a layperson until yeah. I started looking at it critically. Yeah. There is an assumption that cities are neutral. There yeah. are they are, but but often that thinking that underlies the neutrality is the figure mm-hmm. who we are all imagining as to who the city is actually being designed for who is the person that comes to mind when we uh, when we assume something right like whether mm-hmm. it is uh, drunk driving rules or who is basically so it's just that the, even the mere fact that you were there and talking to women, just it, it's just unpacking a lot of these invisible things. It's visibilizing something that's already been invisible, right? Like mm-hmm. I felt like uh, just the sheer act was sort of telling us something that we just have not noticed or thought to ask um, in the city. Yeah, and, and like, I'm teaching a class
1: right now for undergraduates. It's called Sex and Gender in the City. This is the second time I'm teaching it. And in both times these undergraduate students must be like in the ages between 18 and 20 and it's truly so amazing to see their little minds being blown when they realize that if you take a gender and sex lens to the city it just appears very different and it's something like you said that nobody really t- thinks about or talks about critically like there are dots in your head but when you begin to connect the dots the city just looks very very different and uh, one of the most Interesting moments, I think, in class recently was when they were, yeah, they were just like, oh, there is this uncomfortable or tense feeling that women or, you know, people who, again, do not uh, deviate from the so-called normal of like heterosexual um, a cis man who in different contexts, like say in India, it's the upper caste Hindu man, right? Like who really holds yeah. the holds the mantle and here, it would be the white man. And that's yeah. the context that we discuss in the US uh, in Chicago. And they were yeah. all just like, Oh my God, and the women in the class were like, but we just feel so tense when we're walking at night and I'm like, that tenseness. It's not like a yeah. personal problem. It's like a historically produced condition that is embodied. Like, you know, you're like, mm-hmm. you're experiencing something that is not your own problem. Like this is something that's conditionally and deliberately produced. And yeah, it was just like they were suddenly like thinking about all the moments on an everyday basis that they feel a twinge of discomfort while walking down the street. And for them to imagine that there might be some bodies who don't feel that discomfort was just like wild, where they're like, well, there are actually people who can just walk around and not feel uncomfortable in like public spaces, like, you know, scratching their stomachs in public, or like just like yawning in public, or just being loud. You know, like there are people who can even take these small liberties, which would just be like, again, freedom to to some of us, um, who can never imagine doing such
0: stuff, yeah. It is actually quite unthinkable because I feel like I completely resonate with it because I think, uh, I mean, when you both embody uh, a gendered experience and you're also looking at it critically, there's like, I feel like in the course of my interaction or involvement in this project my mind was constantly blown Mm -hmm. in the ways in which I was able to go back and relate to so many of my own experiences in the city which I also realized is very limited right like I felt like even when we like as we uh, previously pointed out this is one of one of the other things that I noted in in something that in one of your articles is that you pointed out that uh transport not only is public transport very very uh, significantly dismal generally because of mm-hmm. connection convenience and safety mm-hmm. it's also completely absent at nights. yeah so uh, what are women doing at night are like and, and so in the sense that like I think one of the things that stood out to me was that First of all, there is no public transport avenues that are significantly reliable or available. The minute it's it's sort of you know it's it's uh, so the, the the transport system itself seems to be designed for the nine to five you mm-hmm. know job. So, and then there are a host of women who are already out in the city, whether it's sanitation workers, whether it's yeah. sex workers, whether it's women who are coming back from their night shifts or going to their night shifts in factories and upper class women or you know IT workers or coming home. Yeah, may have so there are there are all of these women her who are still in the city. And yeah. and I don't think that, I don't know how many, like I, I actually, I'm curious about whether anybody feels comfortable walking at night, because yeah. even now in this context, we're talking about taking cabs, right? Like from one point to another for those who can afford it. And mm-hmm. for those whose organizations sort of offer these, there are certain kinds of, you know, mediations around it, except mm-hmm it's a it seems to be a workaround, but nobody is thinking of the fact that maybe we should be having public transport at nights. It's like a, yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: um, I think there are some workarounds um that were attempted, didn't work out like. So I just also want to caution that when there's, I've seen that there's a lot of writing around, you know, women taking up risks and loitering and that while loiter project has been seminal in that aspect, it's been so great. Uh, but I do think that the particularity of uh, speaking from a Bombay standpoint is, is, it just doesn't apply to a lot of other cities, especially in Hyderabad, in the newer parts of the city. The feel is a lot more deserted. There are huge roads, there's not as much lighting, there are not as many people, so you just feel really, really unsafe walking at night. And it's not the yeah. same as a bustling city like Bombay, especially, you know, like a city that doesn't sleep. Like that, I wouldn't feel that afraid walking there. I've walked in Bombay at like past midnight I walked from like train stations to my house like uh, where I was staying for a few months and it was just a very different experience but like in Hyderabad or even Bangalore at night even though it's the pub city that's the thing like people are indoors they're not outside loitering you know there's like a big difference between being awake consumptively and being out um, recreationally or whatever so like you know uh, I just want to point out that while that work is great I don't think it helps us um make sense of certain kinds of experiences in other cities outside of say Bombay or even Kolkata, which is a lot more, um, a lot more active that way at night. Um, but coming to Hyderabad, so there were an initiatives that, uh, that the government took at one point with like these she-cabs and trying to train more women auto rickshaw drivers to make this particular yeah. issue of public or at least semi-public transport available to women at night. And the problem then became that they weren't finding as many uh, willing women drivers to drive at night. And I was wondering about this too. I was like, oh wait, why, is, why has this not taken off? Because such initiatives say in Mexico City took off actually really well. And there is a thriving like semi-industry of like women cab drivers doing, doing this work of producing safety for a certain class of women. Sure, but at least like making some effort in that direction. Uh, and I was speaking to a woman auto driver in Hyderabad. Yeah. Her name I
0: is, did, yeah. want you tell the story, and I'm actually excited because yeah. I really wanted to tell the story. I actually yeah. wanted to point out one other thing in this aspect, because yeah. it's not only that, I think, uh, it's also this, uh, I think the gig economy also offers that promise, right? Yeah. The promise yeah. of the gig economy was that anybody, can enter it there is flexibility there is uh, options and there is a way in which but I think I wanted to sort of frame that also because I Mm -hmm. think cabs and Ola and Uber and in particular I think which a lot of upper class women are now using in order to navigate the city across I mean both in Bangalore and in Hyderabad most major cities yeah um this is a question that I also had and when we were talking earlier like I was like why are there not more women cab drivers. Why mm-hmm. are they not a common sight? Why are, why are there not any? Why do yeah. you never find a? And I think there is something it's like there is an invis, there is a silence there which is this promise of the gig economy that is not delivering because yeah. it somehow doesn't seem to apply to women and i wanted to just point frame this before you tell the story because yes please go ahead
1: yeah, yeah. and just like one other thing about the gig economy is that uh, uh driving in uh, in hyderabad i mean as such there's a lot of stigma around what it means to be a driver worker so even though the gig economy has come to destabilize some of these assumptions around who's a driver worker and whether they're always from a certain class, there is still a very strong cultural stigma around driving to make money. And that's something that you can't take off the table when uh, especially becomes like a cultural barrier for women who want to become drivers in the big gig economy is that one of the first things that they would hear is just that, do you want to be a driver? Like, you know, that's such a low class thing to do. So there are a lot of, lot of classist undertones that uh, I think the gig economy in a sense, even maybe without even meaning to is destabilizing in a very slow way, at least in a context like Hyderabad. But uh, the the labor of driving is very difficult in the city, and it takes a long time to earn a slim profit. So it doesn't actually add up to a lot. So that is something that app-based workers have been fighting for because their margins are just very, very thin. So the burden of making these margins means that you're driving for 14 hours a day, which is not something that a lot of people are willing to put in. And understandably so, because that system is very rigged against people actually making um, a good life. Anyway, that aside, coming to yeah. uh, the, the point about there not being women, more women drivers, uh, I had the pleasure of speaking to one of Hyderabad's most prominent women auto drivers. Her name is Narayana Ma and she is absolutely like badass. I love her. Um, we uh, Somebody told me about her and she, they were like, she's like the one person, the one woman in Hyderabad who still drives an auto rickshaw. And she's been driving for 14 or 15 years now. And wow. she's like the one person who's continuously been driving. That's the thing. Like there have been a lot, lot of women who have like entered the field of driving and then left or like, you know, there's not been as much of a consistency in being a, like a prominent presence, but Naranama has been there for the past 15 years like without ever leaving her job as an auto rickshaw driver. So obviously I was very curious. I reached out to her. She's a bit of a local celebrity. Like all the news channels have done like little, um, shows with her. Like she's always getting press, um, like attention so she wasn't mm. at all you know frazzled by me calling her and saying I need her time she was like yeah yeah you can spend half the day with me just come on over so I went all the way I took a metro from Sikandrabad to like Nizampate, and then I got down the metro station and I hailed an auto rickshaw there was a young guy driving and I was like I need to go to this like village in Nizampate, it's like uh, 10 kilometers from the metro station can you drop me and he was like okay but where where do you need to go and I just like took a chance and I was like do you know Nara and he was like, "Yeah, yeah, auto rani." And I was like, "Wow, auto rani!" <laughs> <laughs> so you know, she's actually known as Otto rani in that area because she's oh. like this, like awesome. And I don't like I'm using the word auntie with a lot of love, who is just like driving this auto and is just awesome. So when I met her, the first thing she said was, "She was like, yeah, people like I'm very popular because a lot of young women." They want to go out at night to the IT part of the city, but they don't trust like cab drivers or men auto rickshaw drivers because they are, you know, they're up to some funny business or the other. So they all call me and I just like sometimes she does something like auto pool. So she'll pick up like three women from different parts of the, you know, the neighboring uh, area and then she'll take them all to IT sector either for work like they're normally call center or BPO workers or she will like, you know, drop them at a restaurant or whatever. And they all Mm -hmm. rely on this auntie labor of the night to feel safe, right? And when I was speaking Mm -hmm. with her, I was just like, wait, why aren't there more people like you? Because I would love to like, you know, be driven by someone like you. And then she was like, there's just something so simple that nobody has really thought about is just that there are not, there's no public restrooms for women to use. So when you are driving around or when you want to make possible the opportunity for women to become drivers, you have to think of these infrastructural conditions, like are there publicly available restrooms? Are they clean? Are they convenient? Like they should be everywhere because driving is a very mobile activity. So you're going from one area to another. So you just have to have these things. And I was like, oh yeah, like why is this? And then I realized that men, just like many of my men driver informants, they could just walk in and pee anywhere. You know what I mean? Like they didn't have to have like a specific place. And then Mm -hmm. when this came up, I spoke to an urban planner at GHMC actually, and I brought this up and that person was like, yeah, we did have some, I mean, there are some public restrooms, but you know, like the maintenance and all, and he just like, didn't really answer the question of like, why wasn't this baked into the plan? And it's again, a point to lack of coordination because the team that was invested in the she-cab thing was not really coordinating with the urban planners and making possible these, I mean, even if they were, it didn't really pan out the way they had planned. So Yeah. yeah, there was like still, like experientially, there was still a gap. And Naranema was pointing to that gap and being like, I can do it because I have been doing this work for 15 years and I don't actually, she doesn't travel very far away from her home. So her home is not too far away from IT sector, especially at night, so it's fine. But so she keeps going home if she needs to take a break. But the fact that that kind of an option is not available just makes, you can see why women don't stay in the profession or like are just not taking up the labor of driving as a viable option. It's just, doesn't make sense.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, this blew my mind also. I think um, just the fact that, I think uh, you've pointed out over the course of this conversation significantly, right? The Mm -hmm. lack of urban infrastructure, the way in which it affects women across class caste religious barriers i think Mm -hmm. uh, the people that who rely on urban infrastructure are often invisible in the city right like we don't it seems to be that we we don't like they don't seem to feature in the conversation at least the women particularly who use and rely on urban infrastructure don't seem to be You know, uh, featuring in the conversation, even in the articulations around demands for public infrastructure sometimes. And I think, uh, I mean, when you said this, it's such a no brainer, Mm -hmm. but it is also something that to me, it also, that's what I felt like is so disruptive when you just place But the women are the center of thinking about the city. Mm -hmm. What do you learn, right? About how the city itself is organized and what it is completely leaving out and what that means for women's opportunities or their ability to even think about taking part in something. And I think... um, Uh, Yeah, and and you also touched upon a couple of things, the lack of coordination, say, between the people who are thinking about transport and Mm -hmm. the people who are literally building the city and providing infrastructure, Mm -hmm. which I think is also an institutional problem, right? Like where there is transport policies are determined by one agency, whereas the infrastructure that that you critical infrastructure that transport needs and has to go hand in hand with is dealt by another organization and often these are not speaking to each other and there is a silo and the third thing i think that that i wanted to sort of bring up that you like that i was thinking when you talked about this is about the being local like one of the ways in which naya nama Mm -hmm. seems to be have been able to navigate this is by staying close to where she is right Mm -hmm. and somehow women seem to have to be close to where they are, even in the way that they navigate the city, not just because of the lack of infrastructure, but Mm -hmm. often because I think of additional responsibilities and duties, right? Like there Mm -hmm. is the gendered uh, care work that women, again, is also invisible in the city that seems to be predominantly done by women across sections of the society. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, and I was just curious about if this ever came up in your work, in terms of what it meant to have children, what it meant to take care of the home and also come out and do work in the city.
1: Yeah, um, definitely did come up. Uh, It's something that women, I think, actively think about a lot. And um, when, you know, this idea of planning with centering women, it also brings up the question of within the category of women, who do we center, right? And I think in general, the most inclusive planning can occur if we dig deeper and, Uh, 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 just as an example I think a city designed around the needs and desires not just needs but active uh, desires for pleasure of um, you know of Dalit women might be a radically different city and that is the kind of inclusivity that we must aim for because um, Mm -hmm. and I feel like On the one hand, we do tend to talk about uh, logistical things that women need, like I know that there's a lot of user experience um, surveys and stuff that uh, urban planners do uh, to a certain extent to capture the experiential aspect of how infrastructures are dwelled in. But I do think that the whole focus on like a technocratic form of uh, thinking about urban spaces. The problem is that it doesn't quite capture how people are feeling in these spaces, right? And uh, it is a very masculine form of knowledge production also, like this embodied autonomous agent that's just able to like go anywhere and everywhere. That's not at all true of the experience of most women. And I also don't think it adequately captures pleasure, it is just like a very utilitarian Form of understanding the role of infrastructure provision, like how can we increase efficiency, how can we increase speed, how can we increase circulation, and all these things are typical facets of um, of like building a city that can attract uh, a neoliberal capital, of course. Uh, and that kind of misses out on the myriad um, sensory possibilities and like how people, yeah, like laugh in the city or like what what like what makes people tick or like how do we reframe. Um, being a part of the city as fully belonging, right? And I can, a lot of people feel like they don't belong. Like you can, sure, you can use it. And I keep telling my students too, that I'm like, not being sexually harassed is like the bare minimum. That's not, that's not asking for a lot. (laughs) That's just like the basic that a city can provide and ought to provide. But that doesn't Mm -hmm. mean that you fully belong. Like to fully belong means going beyond and above that. Like what are the ways in which we can articulate our, like how can we claim the city that and that needs so much more than just freedom from harassment um it's wild to me that for us just not being harassed would be like you know that's that's great like <laughs> this is all I really want but it's not all we really want we want more and um yeah and like so in that in while thinking about that thinking about children thinking about all these other caretaking responsibilities um it also points to how atomized we are becoming as um as we're all living further and further away from each other, like what kinds of infrastructure, social infrastructures there are for women to access, like a communal f- form of caretaking uh, of one another, but also of their of their children. It also, I think, most policies assume that women have children with with a certain someone who is like. We can step up and take care of the child, which is not at all true of experience absolutely. of many women. But also, mm-hmm. like it, yeah, it excludes single women who might have children, or like women who don't live with their partners, or whatever. Like you know, like just. queer um, women? Yeah. I think
0: yeah, yeah, and yeah I think, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, it's. I think. Um, I mean, when you were talking about this, I was just thinking the idea of, as you said, that maybe we need to be planning cities uh, centering Dalit women if we mm-hmm. want to think about. It. And I was just thinking about it becomes is a it's an it's it's almost like inclusivity also becomes a conversation where how do you take a, a, a binary notion or a a, mm-hmm. a a city built on a, first of all, a city built for one gender. Yeah. And then if we're thinking of inclusivity, it's all often becomes, okay, let's think about women. But mm-hmm, it, it's something mm-hmm. that confounds the notion of gender itself. And Absolutely. like, what does it mean to have um, trans women, non-binary people and right. uh, LGBTQ people yeah. within each and every section of these, mm-hmm. uh, of these, marginalizations, because I think one of the things I was thinking about, and I came across in my reading or research was that, I mean, even when there are public restrooms, there are restrooms for men and women. Yes. Yeah. And the Nalsa judgment, that's been a while. Like there is recognition for transgender and third gender in India, but- It it's a recognition on paper. There is no reflection whatsoever in any system. Or I mean, it's very slowly growing. But within the built infrastructure, you don't see it yet, except maybe in like I think Google's office in Hyderabad has a gender neutral you know Mm -hmm. bathroom. Mm -hmm. Like it's like there are certain spaces which are sort of you know which become which which are again um, you know extremely. corporate or yeah. the the cool companies who are yeah. recognizing this but how many trans and non-binary people actually work within these organizations mm-hmm. that are mm-hmm. using these I don't know whether there is research on that but and it, it, it also it, it's very simple like the idea of Using the public restroom, it's almost utopian for most people in the in I mean most, most women in the city because are, they, they, they just don't seem to be accessible. But even if you do, the fact that uh, something that I think a lot of uh, the, the trans community has articulated is about the even just the fear of violence whether yeah. they use whichever bathroom they pick because the lack of acceptance is the, the sheer act of needing to go to a public restroom can result in a an instance of discrimination. Or something worse. And that is a horrible, I mean, it, it, it was, I mean, I was just viscerally shrinking at the idea of how how horrible that is. And the fact that it doesn't seem to be, yeah, occurring to planning in in, in these decisions, it just, it doesn't figure. And I wanted to talk a little bit about why this doesn't figure. And, and I also wanted to touch upon what you said about not just the atomized existence, but this technocratic planning uh processes right like where we think about efficiency we think about economic development but we're not thinking about pleasure we're not Mm -hmm. thinking about leisure and and like Dolores Hayden I think it's one of my favorite essays now in 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 her uh, article on the non-sexist city talks about how cities are built on principles of capitalism and patriarchy Mm -hmm. and and I was just thinking about how that's still that that is what holds true because our in fact, when you go through, like, I mean, when I just went through the Town and Country Planning Act of Karnataka, or I think if you pick up any Town and Country Planning Act, it doesn't, it reads so technically. It's like, right. there is no, there isn't, I mean, first of all, there doesn't seem to be a presence of a sociologist or right. uh, or anybody from the social <laughs> sciences in, like, in thinking about architecture or planning, which seems to be something, which is like, a, which is a domain that seems to be, and I was having a conversation with someone, uh, who is now a sociologist, but was formerly an architect. And he was telling me that most architecture schools now in Delhi, et cetera, are thinking about adding sociology to their curriculums, you know, Mm -hmm. as a, as a way of thinking of the city as a social space itself. And yeah, like, and I think there seems to be problems at multiple levels, but it all seems to come definitely from just not thinking about different people. It's like, who is using the city there seems to be a there seems to be a severe dearth of imagination right mm-hmm. it's uh, yeah and we've not even talked about ableism i think we've not like i think it's a disability is a cross cutting i think it's a i mean i i don't even know what words would um, express how how much the city is ableist in its construction
1: yeah and i just wanted to say that um you know i think thinking about why these um, experiences of voices aren't articulated in urban planning actually it requires us to reckon with uh, something much deeper, which is whose experiences are considered valid to begin with and um, what is legitimate knowledge, right? Like that is ultimately the question that comes up because due to systemic exclusion in India, a certain upper caste uh, creme section of people, of for instance, I belong, uh, often have access to academic entitlement and institutional privileges and produce knowledge um, at a level that is deemed legitimate and uh, somehow more valuable than than the kind of sociology that might exist in the minds of somebody just walking on the street, right? Um, And in a way, we're all sociologists because we're all making sense of the world and we're all connecting the dots even if we don't Think about the fact that we are, but whose knowledge is considered legitimate is a much bigger political question. And I think this question gets inscribed in the built environment. So when you, when you give the the power to make decisions around what is good and what is bad for everyone, basically you're giving away the power of 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 knowledge, right? And uh, the yeah. way cities are built, and one of the ways in which uh, feminist geographers have advocated to invert that is just merely by including more women in planning decision-making, right? So like having more women architects, having more women urban planners um, being on these committees or groups that that decide the design and structure of cities is one way to do it. But I think that in India, that would reproduce this issue of which women and why yes. just women? Uh, and so I think it's a much slower, I think, I mean, I, I certainly think that social change takes a lot of time. Um, and the fact that we are having these discussions to me is always like um, a good sign in the right direction. It is frustrating to look around and see that nothing um, really has changed in a lot of in many many years. Um, but I think with uh, the visibility of advocacy growing, the visibility of political mobilization growing um, in a in a in a tangible way, um, it's I th- yeah I, I think that having more people on these committees and commissions would be important, but there has to be um, a political will attached to it. I feel like things move quickly in India when there's political will behind it. doesn't matter what the laws say and do like the fact that flyovers are built so quickly is precisely because there's a lot of political will around it. So I just don't know how that would work, but making something like providing gender neutral bathrooms like a key issue in electoral politics or you know some form of articulation that becomes an incentive for politicians to act quickly because they do when they want to act quickly yeah. they act very very quickly um, yeah. that takes much more of a like a sociological conversation on this side of civil society or political society you know like having conversations yeah. around this talking about it all the time and one just one way of that i think is is important and um, does not fit like a policymaker hat uh, thing is just like writing, like writing as a a political act, like who is writing and giving people the platform, like something as simple as passing the mic, you know? And it's ironic Mm -hmm. that like I am sitting here and talking about all of this, whereas (laughs) honestly, like I shouldn't be the one talking about this, but that is the, that is the, that is the, insidiousness of systemic privilege right like um, who, yeah. it often determines who gets the mic and that yeah. just manifests in all sorts of concrete quite literally policy decisions and um, yeah that's a bigger uh, conversation.
0: I think it was really um, insightful what you talked about as legitimate knowledge and knowledge production itself right I think that's something that We may not particularly think about, but Mm -hmm. I think we're subtly aware that whose experiences count and whose voices are heard, irrespective of, I mean, we're all carrying these notions and I think it depends Mm -hmm. on the different identities you carry as to whose experience is privileged or whose voice is heard, even if you're speaking and Mm -hmm. what is not heard. And I think this is where, and I was thinking about all of the things that you said, and I was thinking about what it means. I mean, the reason I think this podcast is thinking or it's titled The Feminist City is to is to disrupt this very is this very process and i think this is i think i think feminism is fundamentally disruptive and i think when I, and i when i talk about feminism i'm not talking about savarna feminism or you know a particular type of limited feminism or liberal feminism that is concerned with the occupations and priorities of a certain section of women or but about feminism as something that I think as Uma Chakravarti put it uh, as something that thinks from the margins as about how do you and not only that it, it's disruptive not only in the way in which it's thinking from the margins but in that process it's also tearing down the walls it's scaling as as as, as and it's almost like as each each act has to create more space that did not exist before and if it's not doing that that's not feminist at all because at the end of the day, if the city becomes more equal for upper caste women, that is not that is not a feminist city at all. And if it's it's if it's going to be and also if it's a city that's going to be sort of somewhat equal for women, but at the cost of, as I think you point out in your paper, at the cost of certain kinds of um, implications and projections on low-class men or uh, Muslim men in the city, that is also not a feminist city. That concludes part one of my conversation with Dr. Sneha Navarapu. In part two, we will discuss what it means to fall in love in the city, about space and time for pleasure and intimacy in the city. The relationship between safety and freedom itself, And what are some ways in which we can help change how cities are imagined, planned for, and remade? Please feel free to write to us with your thoughts, feedback, and any suggestions that you might have. I've also provided a list of readings that we've discussed over the course of the episode for you to look at. I hope you enjoyed this conversation and will join us again next week. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss any of the upcoming episodes.